1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote to the French physicist Jean-Baptiste Leroy, Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Although it does not appear that Franklin was the originator of that phrase, the certainty of, of death and taxes, it was more, most likely Franklin that popularized that sentiment. And I suppose a timely one for us to consider, not because, dare I remind you, the deadline for submitting your taxes is right around the corner, but also because of the certainty of death as well, which, as you heard, was, was covered in two of our readings this morning. Two things that you can be sure of, death and taxes. And as much as those are certain, I think there's a little bit more that we can take away from that phrase. Not only is death certain, but that phrase itself demonstrates another deficiency that our temporal world is not able to, to meet or offer, and that is any comfort or consolation in the face of death. Now, admittedly, somebody might make the point or argue that that phrase, the only things you can be certain of our death and taxes, was not intended to, to offer any comfort to anybody facing death. And while that's true, doesn't it also kind of reflect that that's about all the world can say as far as death goes, that it's going to happen, that it's unavoidable, that it has a, a perfect track record, everybody is going to experience it. But the world is powerless really to offer any consolation or hope in the face of death, whether it's, it's your impending death or, or struggling or dealing with the death of a friend or a loved one. My guess is that you don't need me to tell you that because you've probably experienced how inadequate the words of the world come across in trying to console us when we deal with death, especially those that, that don't cling to the hope of the resurrection as we do. And you've heard the phrases in, in different forms. People express to you as you're going through that grieving or loss, they wish you their condolences, their best wishes, their positive thoughts are with you. They might even express or share their own personal ideas of what happens to a person when they die in an effort to try and console you that way as well. But all of those efforts have one thing in common. Every one of them misses the mark terribly. God has something to say to those dealing with death. In fact, God one-ups that. He has more than just something to say. He has something to show us, as we see this morning. Not only does he have powerful words in the face of death, but God shows us that he alone can offer life to those facing death. Where those other sentiments from well-intentioned individuals are going to be fast forgotten and, and miss the mark as far as offering any sort of comfort, God this morning wants to assure you that yes, taxes are certain, yes, death is certain, but so for the believer, 
is the promise of life from death. As I mentioned, we see it in two different occasions. The gospel this morning that that covered for us probably, arguably, the most well-known account of any resurrection in Scripture outside of Jesus, Jesus raising his dear friend Lazarus from the dead. And then we have a different account, one that probably is not as well-known to us recorded in 2 Kings chapter 4. Both of them, God shows his power over death. While the one might be a little easier for us to stomach, when we look at this morning the account from 2 Kings that is recorded for us, it carries with it a certain amount of weight as any instance of a child dying would. Though we all know death is coming, there is something to be said for the person who has lived a long, full life, preparing us for that time, readying us for when that time is near, but, but it always feels as if a child is gone too soon and was robbed of the opportunity of a long life. And so it stings a little bit more when we come across the events that is recorded for us in Second Kings. To provide a little bit of, of context where, where we pick up from our reading this morning, it helps to know what the relationship between Elisha and the Shunammite woman was. She was kind of a, a, a rare individual then and now. Not only did this believer, this child of God, have the desire and the passion to support God's ministry by taking care of one of his prophets, but she also had the financial means and backing to do so. A rare thing indeed. Many people want to help. Many long to, and, and then there are, are many who have the financial ability to do so, but then rare are those who match them and provide for and support God's work in the way that this well-to-do woman did so that she convinced her husband to add on to their home a, a special room for this prophet Elisha, likely to have it built, as we're told, on the, the upper roof of her house, a, a flat roof, Probably a modest room, but it had a bed, it had a table, a lamp, a chair. The basic comforts, probably an external stairwell so that the prophet could come and go as he needed as he traveled frequently by her home. He would always have a place to stay and to rest. And as an expression of gratitude to this woman for her generosity, for her care, Elisha wanted to do something nice for her. Now, he did hold a little bit of sway, and so he offered to this Shunammite woman to put in a good word for her, perhaps offering a place of prominence in, in the courts or, or some favor by those who had the authority to grant them. After she declined and preferred to stay where she was and, and maintain her house and home, Elisha's servant Gehazi pointed out to Elisha, there was something that she was missing. She didn't have a child of her own. And the fact that her husband was well along in years made it very unlikely that she would have a child anytime soon. So Elisha assured her, in a year's time, you will hold your own child in your arms. And she was so shocked, so surprised that she didn't want this prophet to get her hopes up. She said, don't tell me it's going to be if you don't plan to make good on that promise. But sure enough, a year later, she held her own son in her arms. 
And then at some time after that, we don't know exactly how many years had passed, but, but obviously this boy was now old enough to be outside or possibly even helping the servants as they were reaping the harvest. And that's where the devastation happens. We're told in, in verse 17 of chapter 4 in Second Kings, the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about that time, she gave birth to a son, as Elisha had told her. That child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. He said to his father, My head! My head! His father told a servant, Carry him to his mother. We don't know exactly what was wrong or what had happened to the boy, but... Most commentators presume that he was suffering from sunstroke, which was common in that region and could have been fatal if untreated. Well, the, the dad obviously didn't think it was at that point yet, so he told one of his servants in the field, take the boy back to his mother so that she can nurse him back to health, get him whatever she needs, whatever he needs to be restored again. Well, the servant brought the little boy who then sat on his mother's lap for a few hours and then tragically he died. She didn't waste any time. She took the boy and she laid him down on the prophet's bed, perhaps to hide the fact that he had died. And she, she went promptly to where we would all hope to go directly when there is any suffering, tragedy, heartache, she went to the representative of the Lord. She went knowing that if anybody could do anything, it would be this man of God who not only promised the son but made good on the promise as well. Elisha sees her coming in the distance, sends out his prophet Gehazi to ask her if everything is all right, if the husband is okay, if her son is okay, if everything was all right. And it kind of might grab our attention she seems to downplay the, the servant Gehazi, giving him the impression that, that all is, is well. She wasn't trying to be deceptive. I think we can relate to her situation when somebody else observes that something's off or you're not feeling right and they say, is everything okay? And you say, oh, I'm fine. Not because you're actually fine, because you either didn't want to talk to it about it at that time or you didn't want to share anything with that particular individual. She was content to simply go and take the matter to the man that she knew could do something about it, to Elisha. So when she gets to Elisha, she pours out her soul. Didn't I tell you, don't promise me something like this only to go through this devastation. You said I was going to have a son and now he has been taken away from me a man of, of compassion, Elisha sent his servant Gehazi to do something about it. He told him immediately, make the trip back to the woman's house and I want you to take your staff and I want you to lay it on his face. Gehazi followed orders, didn't speak to anybody, went right to the woman's place, did what was asked of him, only to come back and report to Elisha that it hadn't worked. Notice the dedication also of, of the woman, the Shunammite. She didn't leave Elisha. She was going to stay by his side until something had happened. So very likely as Gehazi was returning and Elisha and the woman were also going back home, then Elisha made his way. And as he arrived, went up to the room and gives us a fine example, a fine model of what to do, closes the door 
and praise. This man of God who had a, a direct connection with God takes the time to do what all of us would do well to do in any situation and go to the Lord in prayer. He prays, and then he does something that might strike us as a little bit odd, especially in this day and age. He spreads himself out on top of the boy. As we're told, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, hand to hand. Perhaps he was simply imitating what his mentor Elijah had done. If you go back and read the account of Elijah raising the, the widow from Zarephath's son, he did a very similar thing, stretched himself out on the boy as well. Perhaps simply because, as you know, when death strikes, the body goes quickly cold, and so he was taking his body warmth, and we're told that the boy's body started to become warm. But this was not an instantaneous miracle, not like when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out, and instantly Lazarus rose from the dead. No, Elisha got up off the boy and, and paced in the room a little bit, not giving up on the Lord, but recognizing that sometimes the Lord has his own economy of time. Sometimes right away, sometimes he chooses to take a little more time to work his might and his power. And so he then stretches himself on the boy one more time and a sneeze. And here's why it matters. I don't know if you knew this. Dead people don't sneeze. The boy sneezed seven times, we're told. He was alive. God had enabled Elisha to raise this once dead boy, unnamed boy of an unnamed mother, from death to life. And he made it so apparent that this was God's hand at work. Some speculate, by the way, that, that when Elisha first sent Gehazi and, and had him rest his staff on the boy's face, that Elisha maybe knew that that wasn't going to achieve anything, but he was ruling out any potential for superstition that somebody would associate any magic or anything else with his staff and wanted to reinforce that this would happen only by the Lord's hand. Because you know as well as I do, there is no practical purpose for spreading a live body over a dead one and hoping that that's going to accomplish anything. Nobody brings in a, a dead body to the ER today or a near-dead body to have the doctor say, all right, remove everybody from the room and all of the medical equipment and I will stretch myself out on the dead body and it will rise again. It doesn't happen because God was making it abundantly clear that this resurrection happened by his power alone. Now, when we consider this account and as I mentioned, the other accounts in Scripture, 10 of them recorded in instances where somebody who was dead or groups of people were dead and now are alive. What is the, the point? What is the significance? What does God want us to take away other than the fact that God is powerful? He has even power over death itself. Yes, indeed, he does. But there's more to it than that. It's by these multiple resurrections from the dead that God wants us to tightly connect both his spiritual promises with his physical promises. Because you probably know, as I do, that 
that in different seasons of life we tend to, to waver, to waffle from one to the other. We, we cling to the spiritual promises, but we struggle physically to see how they could come true or play out. Or, or we see these resurrection accounts and we are encouraged and built up in our faith to see God's power, but the spiritual promises maybe don't resonate or, or connect with us. So why does God have and record so many of these instances? Because each time we read about his power of life over death, there is a tighter connection for us. It says when God makes us a promise spiritually, we can also trust what he promises physically. And when God makes a promise physically, we can also promise or believe what he promises spiritually. Both are true. And how important is that? It means everything. Because as Scripture has made it very clear to us, Every one of us is born into this world dead in our sin. Totally incapable of doing anything about it. Unable and, and even undesiring to make ourselves alive. It'd be impossible even if we did desire it. Ephesians 2 makes it clear that we're dead in our sin, but we are made alive only through faith in Christ. And just as sure as we can promise, trust that spiritual promise from our Savior, so can we trust the physical promise. Just as the Spirit has made us alive through faith in Christ, so too will our physical bodies remain alive as well. That isn't an assurance that, that everybody has. It is something that we receive, something that we believe only through faith, that itself even a gift of God. It's hard not to imagine the writer to the Hebrews speaking of that faith and referring to the faith of this Shunammite woman when he wrote in, in what we often refer to as the, the hero of faith chapter in Hebrews 11. He talks about the women in verse 35 who received back their dead, raised to life again. I wonder if he didn't have the, the faith of the Shunammite woman in mind when he wrote that. A, a faith that we share with her. The same faith in the same gracious God who is able to deliver in the same promises in the same way. Not a, a promise or a comfort that those outside of faith have. Right now is our time of grace. Right now, this time that we have here on earth is, is God's opportunity for us to see that in Christ we have been made alive. But sadly, anybody outside of that faith who is still spiritually dead and then dies physically as well does not have and cannot any longer have the hope of eternal life. Now is the time right here to believe and cling to God's promises in Christ Jesus. Because when our time here on earth is over, those who are spiritually dead will remain eternally dead as well. But not so for you and me who are in Christ, who have the confidence of life eternal. At what cost? Well, we are only a week removed from being reminded of the price that was paid to give us the assurance of life eternal. Only a week removed from, from the hosannas of Palm Sunday to the heartache of Good Friday. 
where we see exactly the price that was paid to promise us life. Not just spiritual life in Christ, but physical life, real life, eternal life that is yours and will always be yours through faith in Christ. Amen.